0: Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with Our Body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, if you would grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. That's the Gospel of Luke. As you know, we've been making our way through this Gospel section by section, and at times even verse by verse. And so it took us a little while, but we finally made it out of chapter 1, which is the longest chapter in the New Testament. And so that, of course, brought us here last time to the beginning of chapter 2, which, as you know, is essentially the Christmas story. And so it's been a little bit like Christmas in February here, at least for me, as I've spent the past couple of weeks just sort of reflecting on this passage and, and spending my time in it in an effort to attempt to open it up before you as, as faithfully as I can. Uh, but having said that, it's also been somewhat of a refreshing time for me because I've been able to study it apart from the regular clutter that sort of comes with Christmas in December. And so as you're probably aware this is a portion of the Bible that's talked about really only during the Christmas season and so I am intimately aware of how much power is lost as this section has essentially become just sort of this sentimentalized story of of the biblical narrative and so I do hope to disabuse you of some of that. I do hope that I was able to put some of this in perspective a little bit a little bit different perspective for you last time even as we were just working through the first 7 verses of chapter 2. And so before we begin this morning and finish up this section, which is verses 8 through 28, I'm just going to go ahead and read it by way of introduction for us, and then we'll take it from there. So that's Luke chapter 2, and we'll be in verses 8 through 20. Luke records these words. He writes, "...now in the same region there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night." And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. Well, I don't have the time to uh, review for you everything that we looked at last time, but remember that the section here is essentially themed out with uh, this idea of weakness. And so while I don't have the time to sort of recreate the scene for you there in verses 1 through uh, 7, remember that this is not what we often think about when we typically think of a nativity scene. Uh, Rather, this was hard, this was difficult, this was, as we saw, not something befitting the entrance of creation's king. And so as we looked at the scene in, there in verses 1 through 7, we left off with the idea that Christ came in the form of weakness, but for a very specific purpose, and that was redeem, uh, in order to redeem those who are weak. That we might redeem that which is lowly and, and shameful, which of course is exactly what we're going to see here this morning in verses 8 through 20. And so just notice how the scene shifts here starting in verse 8. It goes from this birth event here in Bethlehem in verses 1 through 7 to this field of some shepherds. Now, these were likely some hired shepherds who were, as it says, simply keeping watch over some sheep. They were guarding them and protecting them, just doing what shepherds do. And so the text says that this field was noticed in the same region as the birthplace, so it would have only been about two or three miles away at most. In fact, to this very day, it's a well-known field, a field known as Shepherd's Field, just right outside uh, the city area there in Bethlehem. In fact, not now, but you can actually hop onto Google Maps and you can see Shepherd's Field. And so they're just out there here in the middle of the night, minding their own business. And so you just have to picture this. They're minding their own business. It was probably quiet, probably somewhat peaceful. Maybe you hear the noises and the movements of some sheep. And then out of nowhere, in the midst of the darkness, remember, it's not like they had streetlights or flashlights or something like that, but in the midst of the darkness, heaven itself here is described as literally splitting open and with this blazing light. And then in the midst of the darkness, Notice, there is this mighty figure. There's the presence of an incredibly mighty figure. Now, what you have to understand about this, and I talked about this a little bit back in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1 with Zacharias as he's standing there in the middle of the temple, but what you have to understand is that angels are just never described as these sort of chubby little babies who float around on the clouds and pluck on their harps. Okay, rather all throughout the scriptures are described as never anything less than awesome creatures. In fact, these are military figures. These possess possess enormous glory. They they are a being who project majesty, and so we're going to see that they never fail to show up and incite terror. They always instill fear. They always instill anxiety. In fact, they're beings whose sole purpose and sole responsibility more often than not is to either wage war, or in the case of... Uh, in the case of Gabriel, it's to make a divine declaration from on high as he literally functions as God's very own mouthpiece. And so what you have to understand and what you have to know is that it's never a good thing for somebody when an angel shows up. And so true to every other appearance of an angel in the scriptures, the text says here at the end of verse 9, notice, and the shepherds were terribly frightened. And that's probably still an understatement. Literally, he uses the term here, megaphobeo, megaphobia. And so just in contrast to the weakness of what's going on in verses 1 through 7, this is a dramatic scene. This is a dramatic scene, and it's very sudden. This is a blinding reality. And so you just have to imagine this. I mean, they're minding their own business. They're just going about the night. They're just doing what they've done perhaps for every other night. And then heaven opens. Heaven opens, but then look at what happens then in verse 10. Just seeing that there's fear and terror among these, I guess at this point, what you can only describe as quaking shepherds who have really no ability to defend or even run. Really, all they can do is probably just bow and hope for the best. Notice that there's an immediate response by this angel. He says, and do not be afraid. Why? For behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, that is this very day, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, a Savior who is Christ, that is the prophesied Messiah of old, the one for whom all of Israel has been waiting, the Messiah, or the Christ, who is also Lord, or Yahweh Himself, the very God of the covenant, the very God of the Old Testament. And this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in claws and lying in a manger. Now I said that, verses 8 through 20, carry on this theme of God working through or in weakness. And so what you have to understand here, and I mentioned this last time, but what you have to understand is that there is massive purpose in God declaring the message of salvation to some shepherds. To some shepherds. He didn't go to kings, he didn't go to royalty, he didn't go to Caesar, the ruler of the known world, but he went via this angel to some shepherds who were all alone in the middle of the night, in the middle of this field just outside some obscure town known as Bethlehem. And so in order to make sense of this, you have to understand that shepherds were just not a mighty people. In fact, historically speaking, the Romans actually despised shepherds. They despised shepherds, in fact, so much so that their testimony was considered inadmissible in a court of law. They were outcasts. They were these sort of low-brow bottom-feeders of society. They were considered to be liars and thieves, and so as far as the Gentiles were concerned, they were a people of ill repute. And for the Jews, not much better. Now, while Israel did have a special place in their tradition for shepherds, mostly because some of their greatest heroes were shepherds, not the least of which, of course, being King David himself— But in terms of the Jews, they were still associated with things like lowliness and and weakness, and in in many cases, just due to the nature of the trade, filth. In fact, they were considered to be ceremonially unclean. And so they wouldn't have been allowed anywhere near the temple, the very place where God was said to have dwelled. And so, even in terms of the Jews here, shepherds were just not a people befitting divinity that is related to matters of, of God. They were outcasts, they were unclean, they were at the level of lepers, or to use an Old Testament illustration, they were among those who belonged outside of the camp. They belonged outside of the camp, they were outcasts, they were low in society, especially in terms of religion and and matters relating to God himself. And so this idea then of God's glory coming in the midst of the night or in the midst of, of utter darkness here to a bunch of shepherds is communicating some significant truth. In fact, it captures the essence and the idea here of what it means for the person of Christ to come in the midst of a dark and broken world. In fact, it's illustrating the very reality of what we just saw take place in verses 1 through 7. This is a commentary on the Savior coming into the world to seek and to save that which is in the darkness. And so when you take a step back and view this whole setting really since the beginning of verse 1 here, this is nothing less than a picture then of what happens within the very heart of a person. Within the heart of a person, when for the first time the light and, and the truth of Christ begins to break in on this cold and dead and, and darkened heart. And some of you know exactly what this is talking about. For some of you, this was your experience. Some of you remember what it was like in that very moment when for the first time, and for some of you, when you were least expecting it, when that truth of Christ broke in. Maybe you were reading the Bible, maybe somebody was just talking to you, but where for the first time, even though you might have heard the gospel in so many times and in so many ways, there was this time for some unknown reason where you finally started to understand the fullness of what Christ had accomplished. Of what he truly accomplished, and that he came not just to save the world in some vague sense, but as this passage states here in verse 11, that he came to save you. That he came to save you. In fact, this is the essence of what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, some of you don't remember the moment at which you were converted, but the Bible records it for you. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul is speaking of salvation and the transformation of the soul, where a person goes from hating God to now all of a sudden loving God. And he says there, starting in verse 6, for God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness. So, speaking of what he did back in the book of Genesis, that he brought light and and life into a place where there was previously no light, where there was nothing. It was just this dark and lifeless and, and purposeless void. And so for God who said, light shall shine out of darkness is the very same one who has shown, but in our hearts, in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, which is what? It's the revelation of Christ. In other words, the way that salvation works, according to Paul, is that God takes his cold and dead and darkened heart who is bored with God and unimpressed with God and getting along just fine without him. And mostly because they're just ignorant to the fact and the reality of who God is and therefore who they are before Him. But then in a moment, just like He did in the book of Genesis, He all of a sudden does what? He speaks. He speaks. Or in the case of conversion, somebody speaks the gospel and then in a moment, light shines where? Into the darkness. It shines into the darkness of the sinful soul and so there's just this exposure there's this exposure of sin, this exposure of God, this an awareness of grace and mercy. And so there's this paradigm shift. There's this altering of, of your entire reality. You don't quite know what just happened. You're kind of like the blind man who's questioned after Jesus makes him see. He didn't really know what had happened, but he did say that one thing I do know is that I once was blind, but now I see. It was only dark, but now there's, there's light, it's fuzzy, things don't quite make sense. they are figuring things out, there's still understanding that has to come, but one thing you do know is that Christ is a great Savior. It once was dark, but now you see. And so at the beginning of the gospel here, Luke records this incredible event that illustrates the very reality of what happens, but within the soul of a person within the soul of a person, that when salvation comes and Christ is revealed, there's an exposure, there's a, re- uh, a revealing, there's, there's a revelation into the darkness. And so as verse 11, he comes but for you. He comes for you. And so light of that, look at what happens then in verse 13. The angel makes the announcement, but then notice all of heaven erupts. Quite literally, as one man said, paradise opens. And then notice, standing behind the angel is this heavenly host, literally this angelic army which appears with a kind of military presence that's beyond anything you or I have ever seen. But notice, instead of wielding swords and fire and declaring decrees of judgment, which is what angels do, they're in the form here of a choir. And so at the declaration of good news, which again is what the term gospel means, but at the declaration of good news that savior saviors come into the world, they can't help but to explode in song. They explode in song, and you have to understand that this is a class of creature who have been waiting since the fall of man in in Genesis chapter 3, which is what Matt's going to preach about here pretty soon, but they've been waiting since Genesis 3 to see the fulfillment of an incredible promise. And so even these angels themselves, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 1, they had no idea all throughout the history of the world until this very moment of what that promise in Genesis 3.15 would look like. And so Peter states that they longed and that they searched and that they made inquiry, even as new revelation would come about through these prophets of the Old Testament who were speaking and indicating of the person of Christ. And so after centuries of waiting and wondering, it's come. The moment arrived, the fulfillment of all that God said that he would do was here, And so these angels can't help but to praise the fact that their God, that is their maker and sustainer, is truly a God who is faithful. He is faithful. He is faithful. And so look at what they declare in the form of this song, verse 14. They sing, Gloria in excelsis, Deo, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now, now you can't miss the irony of this song. You have here the fiercest army, which is what is meant by the term host. It's, it's this divine army. It's this angelic order of, of divine warriors, if you will. That's what the term host means all throughout the Old Testament. And so they show up with this military presence. But notice they're displayed in all of their divine and imperial majesty. And so instead of blowing a horn of war or judgment, like we see in the book of Revelation, notice they're singing a chorus in which they're declaring peace. They're declaring peace. And so the language of the song has been often confused, mostly because of the King James Version, which states something like, and peace on earth and goodwill toward men. But a better translation would be like what we have here in the New American Standard. Quite literally, it should be rendered in peace on earth among men of, of good pleasure. In other words, this is a statement of divine judgment, which is what angels do. It's a declaration of judgment, but notice a judgment which lands... In the shepherd's favor. In other words, this isn't a statement of just some kind of general peace or, or general happiness, and that God's just now somehow provided a better, more pleasant life for the world, kind of the sentimentality really of what Christmas is, but rather this is a statement of divine justification. In fact, it could be translated as this: and peace on earth among men with whom God finds pleasure. And so this is a statement really of divine election. This is divine election. In fact, what you have to understand here is that these shepherds did literally nothing. They did nothing. Notice, they're simply minding their own business. They're doing the deeds of just ordinary life, which in theme here is deeds in the darkness. They're just going about their business, going about their life, quite content, quite undisturbed, doing their work, feeding their families, just doing what humans do. And then God shows up. And then God shows up. Notice there's nothing that these shepherds did to provoke this. They weren't looking. They weren't waiting. They, they were just doing a night like any other night. And so what's unique about the way that God always works, especially when it comes to the nature of salvation, is that He always comes to those who are sitting in absolute darkness. In absolute darkness, which is every single person, by the way, in their natural state. And yet notice, he doesn't come to every single person. In fact, this is a commentary on the way that God works. Notice he didn't come to Caesar. He didn't come to Quirinius. He didn't come to some other shepherds in some other field. He doesn't even peer to the the Jews in general. And yet notice, he still comes to those who aren't looking for him. They're not seeking him. They're not wondering what they need to do to get right with him. You think these shepherds are thinking anything about God or salvation before this moment? Instead, true to God, He just shows up. He just shows up in the most profound of ways and breaks into the darkness. And so He breaks in and notice, He declares peace, not among people or nations, but in the first place, peace between God Himself, the very God of heaven, and unworthy sinners. Low class people, people not worthy, people who even the religious elite wouldn't let anywhere near the temple. This is sovereignty. This is divine election. This is God showing up to whomever He wills and however He wills, and notice without permission, without provocation. These are shepherds who did literally nothing, they weren't better, they weren't a worthy choice. They weren't doing something more pleasing to God that they should somehow garner a visit. Rather, this is God doing what he does from the center of his will, from the center of his pleasure, and so just being the gracious God that he is, he comes down and reveals truth. He reveals a message. He proclaims through his messenger gospel truth. In fact, the entire emphasis here with the announcement centers on the person of God. It's, it's concerning God himself, and it's a wonderful picture pointing to the fullness and the purpose behind the coming of Christ. It's a picture that illustrates something of, of cosmic proportions. Notice there's not only glory to God in the highest, but also peace on earth among men. This is just something in, in which all of creation is affected. And so what you can't miss about the scene here is that it's described, notice, as incredibly good news. This is good news. This is the gospel. This is news that apparently produces joy. Notice this is good news of, of great joy, which will be for all the people, and that's not all people in general, but notice the people. It's for the people, a very specific people, namely God's people. This is good news for God's people. which, of course, is news that has to come against the background of some pretty bad news. You can't, in fact, have good news, truly good news, unless it's cast against the backdrop of bad news. And so let me just say here on on that, because it's something which is clear all throughout the Scriptures, but let me just say that your greatest problem in all of life isn't your family, greatest problem isn't your boss. It's not your anxiety. It's not your sickness and health. It's not how much money you have or don't have in your bank account. Rather, the Bible says that your greatest problem, and this is the bad news, but your greatest problem is the fact that you and I live our lives before a holy and righteous God. That's our problem. Our greatest problem and the greatest issue that you and I will ever face isn't some temporal hardship, but rather it is always the person of God himself. And this is not a popular message, but this is the Scripture. Our greatest problem is the person of God himself, and the reason for that is not because he's mean, it's not because he's purposefully withholding something good from you, not because he's not interested in your happiness. In fact, God is profoundly interested in your happiness and your joy. Read verse 10. Rather, your greatest problem is God himself, because in the final analysis of both life and death, you and I are going to have to stand before him. We're going to have to stand before him, and when you stand before him, he won't be in the form of this helpless little baby swaddled in some cloth and stuck in a feeding trough Rather, he's going to be in the form of the glorified, resurrected Christ who sits on the throne as creation's judge. And what he'll be judging is not the fact that you're a bad person, not be judging the fact that you could have maybe just done a few more good things in life, like take some more communion or give some more money to the poor. Rather, you're going to be judged on one thing and one thing alone, and that is, as this passage states, is that he takes no pleasure in you. No pleasure in you. And the reason he takes no pleasure in you is because all of us, no matter who you are, what you've done, good, bad, or ugly, but the reality is that all of us are nothing but sinful. Sinful. And sin is always... Before anything else, nothing less than the highest form of rejection, whether you view it this way or not, but it is the highest form of rejection of your creator, your maker and sustainer. And so the Bible says that all of us are going to stand before him where he will sit as judge and you and I are going to stand before him as the ones being judged. And it'll be in that moment in which he'll look at all of us and declare each and every person wicked, sinful, and guilty. Wicked, sinful, and guilty. And none of us, doesn't matter who you are, what you have, or quite frankly, even what we feel about the situation, but none of us are going to have any kind of excuse or explanation that'll make any part of that divine decree void. We are guilty, we are sinners. Unless, in that moment when you're standing before him, somehow God the judge finds pleasure in you. And so what you have to understand about this passage is that there is such a tight connection between God's pleasure for a person and the sending of his son. In fact, without his son, there is no pleasure. In fact, you can see this just one chapter later in chapter 3 in verse 22, where right after Jesus' baptism, he comes up out of the water, and the text says that there is this voice that comes down from heaven and declares over his son, this is my beloved son with whom I am well, what? Pleased. Well pleased. And so the message of the Bible and what makes this incredibly good news is that this whole thing has got nothing to do with what you're able to do for God, which is what makes things like the Catholic faith so insidious. It's what makes every system of religion so wicked, and why? Because every single one of them is a system of works, a system of good works in which you have to try to please God and, and earn grace and keep His favor, And so what makes the gospel of Christ truly good news is that everything that it contains has everything to do with what God has done for you. In fact, that's the very meaning of grace. It's that which you don't deserve, and indeed that which you can't deserve. In fact, the moment in which you're able to work for, which is what every other system of religion tells you that you need to do, but the moment that you're able to work for it, then by definition, it ceases to be Grace. It's like they can't figure this out. And so verse 11, there has been born for you a Savior, a deliverer for you, for your benefit, for your good, for your eternal joy. The Savior has come for you. And so just like these shepherds here, we're doing nothing for God in the dark of the night. It's actually a perfect picture, I think, of what it means to be human. Of what it means to just be a normal person living your normal life and perhaps ignorant or or maybe just indifferent to the realities of God. And then unbeknownst to you, God has done something. He's done something and he's done it for you. You didn't earn it, you don't deserve it. There's nothing you can do to earn it. There's nothing you can do to deserve it. Rather, God from His sovereign will and good pleasure has decided to take pleasure for some reason in you. In you. So how do you know if God's taking pleasure in you? How could you be certain that He will take pleasure in you? Simple. The Bible's clear that if you believe In Jesus Christ, that is, if you trust in the fact that his work on the cross was a work in which he bore away the very guilt and shame of your sin once and for all, that your issue of your sin and therefore the issue of God's displeasure against you as a holy and righteous judge has been eternally solved once and for all, then the message of this text becomes true for you. It becomes true. And how? Well, because this has everything to do with faith. With faith, it's not a system of works. It's not a system of doing the right things. It's not a system of trying to outweigh your sin with, with good things. Rather, all that God requires from the beginning to the end is faith. In fact, if you didn't know, the only reality that pleases God is faith. All throughout the Bible, from beginning to end, faith is what pleases God and makes a person righteous. Hebrews chapter 11. It requires faith, which is simply a word that means to trust, that you are trusting in the good news that a Savior has come. And so right now, you are to trust a promise that in Jesus Christ, your sin has been dealt with, your sin has been solved, there's nothing you can do to fix your reality of brokenness. You are to trust that a Savior has come and that He functions, as the text says, as your peace. And so, if you believe that and put your hope in that, then right now, all that God is declaring between you and him is no longer judicial wrath, but only and forever judicial peace. He declares peace like these angels. And why? Because Christ is our peace. In fact, if you remember the original prophecy, which we looked at last time back in Micah chapter 5, in verse 5, it says there, talking of Christ, that he will be our peace. He is that offering on your behalf. He bore your guilt. He took your shame. He hung in the place of judgment and purchased your peace. And so this is the good news. This is the gospel. This is the reason that angels sing. It's the reason that to this very hour in the heavenly places right now, the angels sing nothing but glory to God in the highest. And why? Because He has made peace, finally, between you and Him. The wicked sinner, and the Holy God. And so really, the only question for you is, the only question for you is, do you believe this? Do you believe that in Christ alone, there remains a promise of peace? That's the question. So notice the response to this announcement. Notice what these shepherds do in response to this news that God has been faithful. Verse 15, he states this, he says, and when the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger and when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in, their heart, in her heart. What I like about the, this passage, and it is difficult to convey in English, but it's certainly there in the original. But what I like about the passage is that there is this enormous sense of urgency that these shepherds have upon hearing this news. And so the meaning of the passage here is that upon anybody hearing the news of what God has done in the sending of His Son is that it always demands a response. In fact, it always elicits a response. And so the reality is that upon anybody hearing of the purposes of God and the person of Jesus Christ is that there is only one of two responses that a person will always have, And that is that they'll either be filled, as it says, known as with a sense of awe and wonder and gratitude, where they got to learn more and hear more and see more and figure out all these realities as they're totally enamored with this new salvation, or they remain unchanged. They remain unchanged. They shrug, they yawn, they find little interest in these words. And again, why is that? Why is it that at the very announcement, one can hear the news and see the news and understand the news so that they actually trust the news and yet another be completely unmoved, utterly unchanged? And the answer, of course, is because God, from His grace and from His sovereign will, has visited the one, to keep in theme here, He's visited one and left the other in the darkness. Or to quote that Corinthians passage, God has shown into their hearts the glories of Christ and the beauty of the gospel and yet the other remains as he picks up on Genesis with a heart that's still void and formless. And so in light of that, just notice the language here of hurrying and making known and wonderment. This just illustrates how a person who's come to understand the gospel for what it truly is are always going to be left at the sense of wonderment They're always going to be left with a sense of awe and amazement at the grace of God, but the reality is that they'll also never be able to keep quiet about it. In fact, this is, I think, one of the marks of a true disciple, especially one who's a a new disciple. I am always amazed at how a person who's been in the faith for 20 or 30 years and and has got all their theology and their doctrine and their knowledge and their, quote, discipline, and yet it's always amazing to me how they're forever out-evangelized by the new believer, by the new believer. And why is that? Well, because it's the new and, and fresh reality for them. And they're intimately aware of what they've just been saved from. And so they can't help but to just speak about these things. With all their bad theology. And yet, people still get saved. In fact, this is one of the best telltale signs of a person who has been, I think, truly changed. Truly changed by the gospel. They can't help but to just keep speaking about these things. They can't stop from speaking about the joy and and the peace and the contentment. And why? Well, because they understand what it means to be loved by the creator of the world. Jesus said, I've come to give my peace to you, my joy unto you. And so for the first time, they understand that reality. They understand that, and so they come to this place where there's this deep awareness of not only what it means to love, but also be loved by the God who doesn't actually sit behind the clouds with this frowning face of displeasure, rather that He is a God who right now rejoices with an infinite rejoicing. Think about that, with an infinite rejoicing, whatever Zephaniah meant by that phrase in the Old Testament. But he rejoices with an infinite rejoicing because right now he sees you exactly as he sees his son, which is with what? With much pleasure. With much pleasure. And so the new believer feels the burden of the lost and dying world. These are fresh realities for them. These are contagious people. They want people to have that joy that Luke speaks about in this passage. This idea of, of Mary in verse 19 treasuring all these things and, and pondering them in her heart is actually a reference to the fact that no doubt she was probably sorting through all these Old Testament passages and, and figuring out all these things that took place in, in chapter one and trying to put the pieces together, She's trying to make sense of everything that's going on as she's announced this news by these random visiting shepherds. But what she's also doing, and it's exactly what Luke's trying to convey here through her response, is that this is the mark also of any true believer, of any true disciple. That the mark of anyone who God takes delight in is also a person just given at the announcement of what God has done through the sending of His Son is a person who's just given to treasuring this news. Notice, to pondering these things and storing them up and, and delighting in the reality of what it actually means to be a person delivered by a divine Savior. And so if you're a person who's just sort of banking on the fact that Jesus did something vaguely 2,000 years ago, and so now you don't have to worry about it because you're safe, after all, you got baptized, you show up to church, you chuck money in the plate... Let me just say that God has saved you, but He has saved you to become not just a benefactor, where you just receive the benefits of salvation, but He has saved you to become a treasure. You become a person who delights in Him and wonders over Him. You marvel at the goodness and the grace of God, and why? Because it all points to the reality that we worship a God who is utterly faithful. He is utterly faithful to His promises. In fact, if you didn't know, that's why you were actually created. Whether you know it or not, this is what God has built you for. The reality of the Bible is that you were brought into this world, much less saved to simply exist. You weren't saved to simply exist or to stick with the imagery here just to keep herding sheep in the dark. But rather, the message of the scriptures is that you were created with a kind of capacity and ability to wonder and marvel at the eternal. This is why all of your pursuits of these finite realities just keep failing you. You have a soul that's had eternity placed on it. And yet, we try to fill the void with finite realities. You were built to wonder at the eternal, and this is called worship. This is called worship, and not just this thing you do on a Sunday morning, but this is a life of worship. This isn't just some appendix to your life. This is the essence of your life. You were created for worship, and everybody worships something. Every single person worships something. You were built for worship. It's just a matter of what you worship. so while it is a true statement to say that Jesus came into the world to seek and to save that which is lost, it is equally true to say that He's come to create treasures and worshipers of Him. In fact, the whole passage is just framed out in this language of joy and and wonder and, and perplexion. Some of you have heard the gospel and even professed Christ as Savior, and I know that, but I'm also aware of the fact that you are bored out of your mind with these realities. You are bored out of your mind, and the point of the passage isn't to try and get you excited about these things. Rather, it gives a description about one who is excited about these things. The mark of one who's truly converted. The one who has a truly converted soul is one who by their very nature now longs to know him, to know more of him. And so another group of you have also heard the gospel, you've professed trust in these things, and while you go up and down through the peaks and the valleys of life, there's still this wonderment and joy over the reality, just just knowing everything about yourself, but there is wonder over the fact that God would still save you. That God would save you, that God would reveal himself to you in the darkness of your own soul. In fact, this is the exact response of these shepherds. Notice verse 20. He states, These shepherds went back glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told to them. I would submit to you that the reason that you exist and the reason that you have breath in your lungs and the reason that your heart beats is so that you might be infinitely happy and and infinitely joyful in the fact that you might know exactly who your God is. That you might know who your God is. Notice these shepherds went back. They, They went back to their field. Simply put, they had to go back to work. In other words, it's not like believing the gospel just somehow changes everyday life for you. You still live in this world, you work in this world, you're still a product of the fall, sin still affects you just like it affects everybody else. But notice they went back completely different. Completely different, And so the text says that they were glorifying and praising God. And so notice then what they were glorifying and praising Him for. It wasn't for their salvation, though that's implied. It wasn't because life was going to be free from hardship and, and misery. That's never a promise of the Scriptures. It certainly wasn't because of some nominal thing like a promotion. This is not a gospel of health and wealth and prosperity. They would be shepherds the rest of their life. Rather, the text says that everything that they heard and seen noticed was exactly in accordance to what? What they had been told. To what they had been told. This is about a message. It's exactly as they had been told. What does that mean? Well, it means that the worship flowed from an understanding that this God, whoever he is, is a God who is utterly faithful to his word. He is trustworthy. His word is true. His message is sure. His gospel declaration is a fixed and unfailing reality. He is not, as Numbers chapter 23 states, a man that he should lie, nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do? Or has he spoken and will he not make good? And so you have to understand what's being implied here. I think one of the reasons for why some of you who have heard the gospel and have actually claimed to believe this gospel and yet still remain in a perpetual state of boredom is because at the end of the day, the reality is that you don't actually know Him. You don't know Him. Now, you might know something about Him, but that is far and away different from actually knowing Him. You have this kind of knowledge whereas Paul states in 2 Timothy chapter 3, where you're always learning You are always learning, but for some reason are never able to come to a true knowledge. A true knowledge. A true knowledge where you have this form of godliness, at least in your mind, but you have a life which utterly lacks a true and transformed power. And so the reality is that God's just this being which you've imaged. He is a being which you've imaged, which is this sad and finite version of the true God of the Scriptures. You don't understand what it means to be a God who is faithful to everything that He says. He is faithful to everything, especially when it comes to realities of salvation and judgment. And so it's the person who responds to the faithfulness of God, a God who will even send His Son to the slaughter to remain faithful. Think about that one. It's a person who responds to the faithfulness of God, who understands that this truly is a God who is worthy of glory and honor and praise. And I think that's what these shepherds knew. I think they knew that. Now, they didn't know about the cross. They didn't know about fancy theological things like penal substitutionary atonement and all the realities of what Christ would accomplish, but they knew their God. They knew Him to be faithful to His Word and that His promise would stand and that a Savior has been brought into the world. A Savior has been brought into the world, and He's been brought into the world for them. This was good news. And They rejoiced. So here's my final word for us this morning. The reality of the Bible is that every single person who's ever been bored, regardless of what they think, what they know, what they feel, but regardless of that, every single person, is the truth of the Bible is that all of us, every single one of us need every single one of us need a savior. Regardless of what you think, you need a savior. And the testimony of Scripture, which is the inspired word of, of the faithful God, is that a Savior has come. In fact, regardless of anything that I've said this morning, that's the only thing that you need to understand, that a Savior has come into the world and that He has come for you. A Savior has come and He has lived a perfect life. He's lived a perfect life on your behalf. He's taken upon Himself the penalty of your sin. He's risen again, conquering death, that great enemy, and that fear of all mankind. And right now, He sits at the right hand of the Father, and one day, you and I are going to stand before Him. And for some of you, that's a whole lot sooner than others. And when you stand before Him, He'll either function as your judge... Or he'll be the one who is prophesied from the ancient days of Israel, he'll function as your Christ and Messiah and mediator and Savior. The Savior who in his body, which is what we celebrate at Christmas, but in his body he took on flesh in the lowliest of states so that one day on the cross of Calvary, he would make eternal peace between you and him. And he did it. His word confirms that. So what he does is that he calls all of us this morning through the preaching of this word, through the preaching of this word, to simply come. He calls you to come. He calls you to find rest for your soul. He calls you to learn for perhaps the first time in your entire life true and lasting contentment, true joy. And for the rest of your days, no longer have the thought or the burden that God is somehow angry with you, that he sits behind the clouds with a frowning face of displeasure, that he is your enemy, but instead with all the heavenly hosts for the rest of eternity, you praise him for the faithfulness of his word. That's why he saves you. That's why he's come. That's why he did all that we're going to see him do, Lord willing, as we work through this gospel He has come to seek and to save that which was utterly lost, that which was utterly lost, but for the praise and the glory of the faithfulness of His name. That is the good news of Luke's gospel. Let's pray together. And so, Father, I do ask that this might be true of each and every one of us this morning pray for all in this room that we might all be able to say that we know and believe and most certainly love the gospel of your son. I hope my prayer is that your word might cause us to reflect this morning, that we might not simply dismiss these things, dismiss them as familiar, but that it might actually have by the power of your spirit an effectual work and indeed a transforming work perhaps even for some, a saving work. I pray for all here this morning that they might see just a little bit more the glorious reality of what it means that You, the God of all creation, has come. And that You're now exalted, sitting on a throne, and that as long as today is, is still called today, that there remains a time to find refuge in You, our Savior and, and Deliverer. And so impress these things upon us this morning. I ask that you would establish them in our minds, that you would seal them within our hearts, that we might have a hope, that we might find a true rest by faith in you, you alone. And so I do ask these things for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen.